This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we look at some good news about COVID remedies proven by science to help acute patients, which made headlines here. Yes, it definitely is a step along the road. Um, There are different phases of the disease where different treatments may be more effective. But at the same time, some media have been belligerently backing medicines with not so much proof they really work. We have treatments for this virus staring at us in the face, but it's being ignored. But before all that, Aucklanders came out from under Level 3 lockdown this week, still worried about cases connected to those clusters. And some said lockdown had been an overreaction in the first place, while others reckoned it should have been even longer. But what do we really learn from media reports of public opinion on lockdowns? I tell you what, it is so good to see people out and about, people coming out of the gyms, people walking to work. Even having all of the colleagues back in the office has just lifted everybody's mood because, honestly, the last two and a half weeks sucked, didn't they? That was News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen with the not especially controversial view that COVID lockdowns are a bit of a drag. And she and 1.5 million other Aucklanders were pretty happy to be out of this latest one last Monday and back to level two again like the rest of the country. Or is it level 2.5? Anyhow, on Monday, Heather Duplessy-Allen was giving the thumbs up to the woman at the top, quite literally, in fact, in the video version of her on-air editorial that day, which was headlined, Thank You, Prime Minister. Credits to the Prime Minister for the brave call to take Auckland to level two today. I don't imagine that this was an easy decision at all. I think this is a really big risk, actually, for her to take politically. And one risk is the renewed criticism of hosts on News Talk ZB who change their tune almost daily, switching positions on crucial COVID management issues. On Wednesday last week, for example, Heather Duplessy-Allen had a very different attitude to the Prime Minister and her decision-making. I actually don't believe a word of what she and her government say about how they're going to do their COVID response. I now do not trust them to keep COVID out of this country. But when she praised the Prime Minister for lifting that lockdown last Monday, just four days later, Heather Duplessy-Allen reckoned the Prime Minister didn't necessarily have a lot of choice. The public mood is changing and the tolerance, especially when you compare it, as I said earlier, to what happened with the last time we came out of Level 3 and into Level 2, It's not the same scenario at all. The public mood is changing and tolerance for the second lockdown and the prospect of future lockdowns is dropping right off a cliff. Coincidentally, just the day after Heather Duplessy-Allen said that Aucklanders' growing resistance to lockdown had forced the issue, ZB's sister paper, the New Zealand Herald, headlined an opinion poll which it had commissioned and the headline was pretty dramatic. A city divided. Lockdown views split the nation. And the story below that began like this. Auckland is strongly divided over whether extending the lockdown was an appropriate response to the resurgence of COVID-19. But the exclusive new poll shows the rest of the country was far more accepting of the super city being kept in alert level three for almost three weeks. Far more accepting? Well, the polling company Kantar surveyed 1,000 people eligible to vote in next month's election between August the 26th and the 30th. And the difference between those inside and outside Auckland was a mere 5% on that question of whether extending the lockdown was an appropriate response. 61% of those outside Auckland reckoned the government's move to extend Auckland's lockdown by four days was the right move. Among those in Auckland, it was only slightly less popular. 56% agreed. Furthermore, the same proportion of people polled in Auckland and elsewhere, 19%, reckoned that the lockdown should actually have lasted even longer. And even if you take geography out of it, the results, broken down by age, gender and income, were remarkably similar. 
and tellingly, only 3% of those polled were don't knows, so this is clearly something that people had pretty firm views on. And as for strongly divided Aucklanders, well, based on this poll, Aucklanders could only said to be divided or out of step with people elsewhere in the sense that the opinion was not completely unanimous. And when the University of Auckland statistics professor Thomas Lumley looked at the survey and at the Herald's report last Tuesday, his conclusion was this. No, that's really not what the poll says. And on Wednesday, the Herald itself acknowledged that with a clarification which said... The Herald accepts that there was strong support for the lockdown and its extension both in Auckland and in the rest of the country. However, on Newstalk ZB on Monday, that wasn't something that Heather Duplessy-Allen seemed to accept as far as Aucklanders were concerned. As we heard earlier, she told her listeners that crowds at beaches, religious services and skate parks showed that Aucklanders weren't on board with the lockdown this time round. And it wasn't just anecdotal evidence of illicit skating, swimming and singing in church that convinced Heather Duplessy-Allen of this. And there is at least one survey out now backing that up, with Aucklanders reporting less compliance by themselves with the rules. Now that survey, Heather Duplessy-Allen referred to there, was another one highlighted by the Herald. On the Wednesday before, the 26th of August, right in the middle of Auckland's second lockdown, the headline on the front page of the paper was this. Team of five million, we're over it. The sense of community felt during the first lockdown in March appears to have dissipated among growing frustration and despair, the Herald said, citing new nationwide research. And that's a bit of a surprise as previous opinion polls, like the one in the Herald this week, showed most people backed the second lockdown even if they didn't like it when asked by pollsters. But this survey reported by the Herald wasn't based on asking New Zealanders anything, but analysing what they themselves had been posting and sharing on social media. Business consultancy Rutherford had analysed more than 400,000 posts on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit and Instagram in the previous two weeks to get, in its words, a snapshot of how Kiwis felt, and they then compared that to stuff that had been posted during the first Level 4 lockdown, which was nationwide. Rutherford found that only half as many people were encouraging others to comply with lockdown rules this time round by sharing messages such as hashtag stay home, save lives. Rutherford also found the volume of social media conversation about COVID-19 had increased, but negative sentiment was up 10%, and it said that the comment was now more intense and at times more toxic as people vented frustration at further restrictions. And Rutherford even put some numbers on it. There had been a 7% increase in sadness and an 8% drop in optimism. And it wasn't the first time that Rutherford had drawn these conclusions from sampling our social media screeds. In the middle of last month, online subscription news service Business Desk reported this. Real-time analysis of social media postings by business consultancy firm Rutherford suggests a more febrile public mood than when the country started its first lockdown. Now at that point, Rutherford found greater anxiety about the spread of the virus and the possibility of a second Level 4 lockdown, whereas there had been much more optimistic and confident conversations online during the first lockdown between March the 23rd and June the 8th. And one of the reasons for all that was the news media. Rutherford's mid-August report found debate about the government's response in relation to the election and mixed commentary about Jacinda Ardern's leadership was a hot topic on social media. And Greg Franco, the head of Insights at Rutherford, told Business Desk this. The debate is much more raging this time around whether or not the government has made the right choice. Two weeks later, Rutherford's research, reported by the Herald last week, concluded that press coverage of the government's response to the pandemic and politics 
provoked the most conversation and it reckoned 58% of online conversation consisted of heated debate about news stories. And in its full report, it even had some advice for the media along with the rest of business. For example, they should acknowledge the pressure consumers face and be seen to be compassionate and supportive wherever possible and avoid being opportunistic. And then Rutherford said this. Both businesses and the media may need to remain neutral during a period of high stress and avoid inflaming the debate. Businesses and the media have a responsibility to reinvigorate a sense of community and encourage the nation to unite, particularly at the moment when the government and political parties are unable to do so. Now, the media don't like being told what to do by anyone or what their role should be in a crisis. So I asked Rutherford's Graham Ritchie why he's giving them advice based on the survey and why a business consultancy was analysing our COVID-related social media stuff in the first place. Well, the work at Rutherford we're doing across both corporate and government clients is really focused on helping them navigate uncertainty, you know, the uncertainty that we're all facing at the moment and how do you best chart a way forward. And social media is a really simple, actionable, real-time barometer. But, I mean, if you're relying on publicly available social media postings, I mean, for a start, you won't get social media postings from people who don't want them to be public and seen by others. So really what you're mining is the New Zealanders who are online, which is a subset of all other New Zealanders and on social media platforms, and they're the ones who are most inclined to post and to share maybe the ones who are a bit more uptight, a bit more concerned and projecting their anxieties out into um, social media? Yeah, I, I, I can understand your question. I think one of the things for us all to, to remember is about 75% of all New Zealanders are engaged in social media on a regular basis. The volume and the percentage of New Zealanders who, who are um, using social media platforms is significant. And and from that, you know, statistically, you can draw some conclusions which are robust enough to guide and inform decisions moving forward. Yeah, interestingly, New Zealand On Air this week released um, a new research called Where Are the Audiences, uh, a survey they do every couple of years, and they say the generation gap between younger and older New Zealanders is less strong when it comes to social media. Um, middle-aged New Zealanders have adopted digital media in a big way. So that's uh, yeah, that's getting a, a broader and broader thing, isn't it, that, that across all age groups in society and uh, possibly other, other uh, breakdowns as well, gender, um, social background, etc., Absolutely. And look, one of the interesting positive things around the the lockdowns that we've been um, experiencing is people's consumption and time in media has increased dramatically. A rise in social media usage, particularly in the older um, generational sets, as people have been looking for information, looking to understand, uh, looking to know um, what to do next. Well, in the survey that made the front page of the Herald last week, uh, for example, one of the findings was that there was more volume of conversation about COVID uh, in this more recent lockdown, but um, fewer people perhaps sharing certain messages that would indicate, you know, they're encouraging the whole effort um, with lockdown, hashtag stay home, save lives and so on. I mean, the Herald interpreted that as people were over it, but Uh, The fact is maybe if people been through one lockdown and they had shared all those messages and tried to be part of the community effort, maybe they just didn't repeat that the second time around, but not necessarily evidence that they're they're over it or or less supportive of the whole communal effort. I think the takeout really for business and government in particular is that people are feeling more fatigued rather than being less supportive. There's an opportunity to reinforce the importance of working together together of supporting each other from either an economic or a health perspective. 
you know, even in the second lockdown, the Ministry of Health didn't use as many as those messages such as, you know, stay home, save lives or stay in your bubble this time around. So, but definitely less, not not so much less supportive, more just general fatigue. Yeah, so maybe less less enthusiasm, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's actual resentment or resistance to to, you know, the lockdowns. Yeah. But what did your analysis tell us about the influence of news media stories and commentary on public debate and public sentiment online? Because I think you found that a lot of the, you know, the engagement of people online was actually responses to sharing off and comment on news stories by, say, mainstream media news organisations. Absolutely. You know, social media conversation is very much the echo chamber of, of what we're seeing, reading and hearing in news coverage. And right now, people are much more anxious than previously. That's why business and government departments you know, need to be aware of this and consider the part they can play in supporting their constituents better. And does that mean they need to be more attentive, monitoring what it is the news media organisations are putting out there? What we found is that fewer positive stories about New Zealanders coming together through the lockdown period, by way of example, were published. What that tends to do is skew the conversation to some of the the other elements um, or the other, the other topics around controversy, whereas content that focuses perhaps more on resilience and effective coping strategies would um, foster confidence and community spirit. So it's just trying to get that balance right. I think what we also noticed is perhaps as the nation tuned into the coverage around the one o'clock bulletins, for the first time, they were quite surprised in the way the media goes about their role. For many people, you know, there's lots of conversations about how combative the discussion or um, questioning was that, you know, has, has skewed some of the conversations around the role of the media at the moment. And look, your report also last week had even a bit of advice for media and business. So, for example, uh, both businesses and the media may need to remain neutral during a period of high stress and avoid inflaming the debate. Emotions have intensified and users are likely to react in heated ways. Uh, brands and businesses could face a backlash if they enter the debate. Now, for businesses, I get that. Uh, but, I mean, the media would say, well, look, we have to allow our columnists, our commentators, uh, the licence to say things that might go against the grain. Is that really what you're telling media, that actually, for your own commercial sake, uh, you need to uh, be neutral? Well, look, clearly the media have a role as the watchdog or scrutinizer, and it's and that's a critically important role. But I think they would agree that the volume, the tone and manner of coverage can either legitimize or create doubt around certain topics. And what we found from our Rutherford's Lab study is that if recovery is important to you, your business or your audience then helping them foster greater levels of care, community, confidence is is really important. But the media might say, well, look, it's our role, A, to scrutinise, uh, even if it's it's bad for their business. But do you think it's, it's actually bad for their bottom line if they do this? Because one school of thought is that a lot of this stuff is, you know, contrarian uh, comment, which, which starts debate. It's, it's there for engagement, and that engagement is a big deal for the modern digital media. The media, like all of us, are citizens of this country, so have an opportunity, um, potentially a responsibility, to ensure that there's balance in the conversation. Simply put, what we saw was, you know, 30% of the conversation was focused around um, controversy and negativity, 
and less storylines around working together in solidarity. And that lack of balance impacts the way people feel and their ability to move forward or how they would choose to move forward. I think what we saw this time around is a move to um, more of the blame and even at times shaming um, of certain situations and, and, certain, and certain actions by different organisations and behaviour. And, and that's understandable and, and calling and holding to account is key. But in amongst that, there uh, wasn't the same uh, level of conversation around solidarity, about working together, uh, about partnership. And I think those are going to be some of the keys that allow us as, an organ- as a country to, to move forward. Yeah, in fact, you picked out a few things that New Zealanders were engaging with in an online debate um, about the government's response. One was you know, support for Labour and the Prime Minister's leadership, divisive Labour versus national debate. I mean, that's understandable given that we're coming up to uh, an election. Um, and another one, distrust of the government. A proportion of the conversation is angry and believes the government's failed in its response and accuses the nation's leadership of lying, fabricating the pandemic and has lost faith in both Labour and National. That's just quoting from some of your your findings about um, New Zealanders engaging in the debate online in in your latest report. Do you think the media needs to worry about this, that somehow, even if they think they're doing the right thing by the public, that actually they're feeding into destructive debate of New Zealanders online? I I don't think it doesn't need to be covered or talked about, because I think it's important and it's where the storylines are running. There's a vacuum that's going to happen from our government uh, over the next coming coming months because of the election Um, and recognising that and ensuring that there's balance in the conversation. Confidence is going to be critical for this country and we have an opportunity to make sure that we all play our part um, in giving people as balanced a conversation as we can. Well, I suppose some journalists and editors would look at that finding, you know, businesses and media need to remain neutral and have a responsibility to uh, reinvigorate a sense of community, encourage the nation to unite. They might look at that and say, well, you know, sorry, but um, we've got to do our job and we think we know what it is. Um, But you think media executives might look at this and and say, actually, there could be a backlash for us. What social media does is, is it acts as that barometer. It gives us, you know, um, a sense of where patterns are shaping and what's important and what's not and who are the organisations or institutions that could best play a role in helping solve some of these things. And it's very interesting to hear how they view the media. But in this one, this latest report that that you did, uh, one finding here, 58% of online conversation consists of heated debate taking place between users in response to news stories, your report says. Press coverage of the government's response to the pandemic and politics provoke the most conversation. And this is news coverage during the period August the 11th to the 24th of this year. And it also says of 4,403 articles published about COVID-19, New Zealanders were most engaged with political news and the government's response to the pandemic. If you were a news editor or media executive, would you be really heartened that actually... It's perhaps not friends and family, individual stuff picked up from corners of the internet that's being debated. It is actually news stories from legit news sources uh, here in New Zealand that are being influential. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. Again, to my point earlier, the surprise with which a number of New Zealanders probably took how the media um, play their role with government, you know, the, the level and of combativeness to try and force answers. 
also the 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 number of updates and um, continued interest has meant you know a lot of media organisations and individuals within those have now become first name basis. You know, people look um, to their views, and um, and I think that's that's testament to the quality of of the questioning that's happening. That was Graham Ritchie, a partner at the business consultancy Rutherford, which has been analysing Kiwi's social media content during the COVID crisis and the effect news media coverage has had on that. And you can hear more about what he had to say about it in the online version of the story. Just look for the title, Do the Claims of Cracks in the Team of Five Million Stack Up? That's on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website and our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it on our podcast feed. And there you'll also find this week's edition of Midweek Media Watch from the Lately Show last week. Wednesday, in which Hayden Donnell talked to Karen Hay about that Herald story, about a city divided under lockdown, and others in the media this past week that had the critics complaining they didn't quite fit the facts. On Thursday, Morning Report on RNZ National had good news about an effective treatment for COVID-19 sufferers in critical care. Now, fewer patients die and less ICU support is needed when patients with COVID-19 are given corticosteroids. That's according to new research published today by the Journal of the American Medical Association. And the leader of the trial in New Zealand, Dr Colin MacArthur at Auckland City Hospital, was the co-author of that newly published global analysis. A big picture of Dr MacArthur dominated the front page of the Herald that same day and a heading that said that his research had shown that widely available and cheap drugs can save critically ill COVID-19 patients. His analysis had found that two steroids cut the risk of death for those needing ICU care, but this was not a one-off or fluke result. It was part of a huge coordinated effort as the BBC reported later that day. All clinical trial data investigating steroids from around the world has now been gathered together and analysed. The results published in the Journal of the American Medical Association confirm dexamethasone works and that another steroid, hydrocortisone, is as effective. The combined data on more than 1,700 critically ill patients showed 40% died on standard therapy, but this fell to 32% with steroids. The findings reinforced a previous UK-based trial and incorporated data from seven clinical trials in 12 countries, including six patients here in New Zealand. And Dr MacArthur was at pains to point out to the media this was not a cure but a remedy. And treatments like this that work are doubly important because they're cheap and because a vaccine is likely to be some way off yet. Susie Ferguson put it like this to Dr MacArthur on Morning Report. Perhaps this is the first step along the road to some combination of drugs perhaps that would result in an effective treatment for COVID-19? Yes, it definitely is a step along the road. Um, There are different phases of the disease where different uh, treatments may be more effective. Uh, Antivirals, uh, if we can find one that's effective, will probably be better earlier on. And then we start the immune response needing to be dampened down later on, such as steroids, which are very generic anti-immune therapies or more uh, targeted therapies after that. And then we have to deal with the complications um, that arise in severely ill, such as an increased rate of uh, blood clotting. So clearly it's complicated medical stuff. And the reason that Dr MacArthur said cautiously that the new findings are just a step along the road. But the weight of international trial data behind his findings meant that the Herald was right to put the word breakthrough in big yellow letters on its front page on Thursday. But sections of the media across the Tasman have thrown caution to the wind in recent weeks by backing another dirt-cheap drug as a cure that's ready to roll right now, 
without any evidence that it would really work. Chris Kenny, on his own show, The Kenny Report on Sky News Australia, which screens on Sky TV Channel 85 here, said this back in April. This high-level Australian study involving a number of institutions, including Monash University, has declared that the drug inhibits the replication of the virus, kills it off. The key points here are the drug kills the virus in test tube experiments, a single treatment produces a 5,000-fold reduction over 48 hours, It's already approved to treat other infections so it can be repurposed and it's widely available as a listed WHO essential medicine. Well, it is, but not for COVID-19 so far as we know. There, Chris Kenny was talking about ivermectin, a drug that's been used for many years in different doses and combinations to treat things like head lice in humans and parasites in animals. And that Monash University study that Chris Kenny talked about there did indeed show in early April doses of ivermectin stopped the spread of COVID-19 infection, but only in a test tube. Now at that time, the Ministry of Health here responded to news reports about that by warning people not to try to treat themselves with ivermectin for COVID-19 because it's also used here as a widely available sheep dip. High doses can have serious effects, said the ministry, including low blood pressure, worsening asthma, severe autoimmune disorders, seizures and liver damage. But soon after that, Sydney-based gastroenterologist Professor Thomas Barodi appeared on Sky News Australia and told Chris Kenny ivermectin in combination with two other compounds does work on COVID-19 if you catch COVID patients early. It looks like corona. It is very simple to kill. Very simple to kill. Now, have you seen this in Australian patients? Can you tell us of any examples of people, how sick they were and how rapidly this drug has worked? No, we have not started using this in Australian patients. We've used it in the US and the the access that I have is where we had a a 14 hospital trial in Bangladesh. We got 100 out of 100. In China, they tried to reproduce it. They got 60 out of 60 cured compared with slightly less... uh, impressive hydroxychloroquine result. So I am behind the ivermectin, doxycycline, zinc uh, treatment because it has very few side effects and is a real killer of coronavirus. And Sky News host Chris Smith was clearly impressed and turned this into a kind of campaign. We have treatments for this virus staring at us in the face, but it's being ignored. And Chris Smith went on to put pressure on the Australian government like this. If the public discovers that we've overlooked the proverbial gift horse, a treatment and a vaccine that turn out to work, I tell you what, the Morrison government's efforts thus far will be quickly forgotten. Now that was three weeks ago and on his radio show last weekend, Chris Smith presented what he called Proof, a woman who said that her 94-year-old COVID-stricken mother had taken the combination of drugs and improved. She didn't have the strength to fight it, so it Go for it. Use it. You've got nothing to lose. Monica, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Chris. Monica Klasinski. We've got a trial that's proved it to be 90 to 100% successful. There's one classic case. What do you get out of her condition now? What, What do you think has occurred? Well, I get mostly happiness, but it looks like she's turned the corner and the bug must have reduced in numbers the viral load because she has appetite, no longer has symptoms according to the nursing home. This treatment works, doesn't it, Tom? Well, it does and works all over the world and there's a lot of evidence for it. Sure. 
Now, health professionals don't usually do a public prognosis of a patient they've never even seen, based on second-hand details on talk radio from a relative who's not a doctor. But after claiming there's plenty of evidence from around the world, Professor Barodi said that the ivermectin, zinc and doxycycline combo could halt the outbreak in Victoria safely in as little as four weeks. Now, like Sky News Australia, Sydney paper The Daily Telegraph is owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, and it described Professor Barodi as having invented a cheap and readily available treatment for COVID-19, and that his own country is now ignoring him. And that was part of a chorus of criticism of the government, big pharma and health authorities from News Corp's papers, and their outspoken columnists like Andrew Bolt, Piers Ackerman and Miranda Devine. Though other media outlets in Australia told a very different story about ivermectin and Professor Barodi's claims. Melbourne paper The Age, for example, reported that the journal which originally published the early findings from Melbourne's ivermectin trial has since published letters from other scientists cautioning against its use. One told The Age, you'll hit safety problems far sooner than you will hit efficacy with ivermectin. And the same day, the Queensland Times reported this. When asked about the drug's potential in treating coronavirus, a molecular pharmacologist from the University of Adelaide said, oh no, not ivermectin, it's not a cure for COVID-19. He said no clinical trial data was available yet and claims that ivermectin as a cure were to be taken with a grain of salt. Meanwhile, stories about ivermectin elsewhere have fired up worries about self-medication. USA Today ran this headline, Don't take your pet's heartworm medicine to treat coronavirus. While the website horse.com sounded the alarm like this. Don't take your horse's dewormer. Ivermectin, unproven as COVID-19 treatment. And after far-right cable channel One American Network touted the drug as a cure that could kill the virus in just 48 hours, the fact-checking service Snopes.com said this. Our analysis determined that this claim is a mixture of half-truths combined with misleading and overzealous claims. Now, reassuringly, the only mentions of ivermectin in the mainstream news media here have been ones warning that it isn't a cure, though there is one exception. Why is there not an open-minded approach, a much more open-minded approach, to the variation of, um, of shall we say, regular beliefs or assumptions? Look, I, I don't have an answer either, but when you go back in history, it is a characteristic of mankind which Machiavelli wrote about in, in Chapter 6, I think, of The Prince, that was Professor Barodi last week in conversation with longtime News Talk ZB host Leighton Smith, who's no longer on the air but does have a weekly podcast hosted by ZB, and The Herald and its publisher NZME. And last week it was a platform for the professor to urge GPs to use ivermectin. I think we got a perfect therapy that just fell into our lap. I don't know where it came from, essentially. When I look back, you might say, why do we have such a neat therapy? And why doesn't everybody just rush and start using it, like you said? Unanswered questions. Well, the answers obviously are political. Well, the answers are actually scientific. But in a rambling 25-minute interview, Professor Barodi said that pharmaceutical companies and research institutes are not interested in ivermectin because it's cheap and already approved, so there's no big money to be made. Professor Barodi said he was willing to brief Jacinda Ardern on all this so that New Zealand could lead the world in ivermectin use, though Leighton Smith let him down gently on the chances of that. And you can treat with a lower dose those around them, and so the whole epidemic will stop in this country. And I'm sure you've got a very brave Prime Minister, Ardern, and I'd be very pleased to arrange some urgent briefing with a COVID team, because that's what really would make New Zealand fly, open the economy, and I'd love to support her great work.
The problem with that is that there is a, a very small advisory group around the Prime Minister with just three or four, maybe five people, and no, no seeming interest in any advice from anywhere else. But the most interesting response in this interview was when Leighton Smith asked Professor Barodi this question. How much support have you got from medical circles? Well, from medical circles, fascinating. I was just uh, shown this morning that someone put up a voting, Barodi versus Fauci. I think I got 99%. Now, that survey the professor seemed so happy with was just a Twitter poll set by one guy in the US who runs his own blog called Covexit, which hosts his own writing on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. He has no significant support in medical circles, but plenty from radio and TV hosts and columnists with a bone to pick about the government and COVID containment policy. But we need decision makers who can take a simple therapy and change the world. It can be done. And with your help, hopefully it will be. I'm happy to assist whichever way I can to to uh, save lives and open up the economy. When media company Me unveiled its annual results here last week, its boss said proudly that NZME had been deemed an essential service during New Zealand's COVID crisis, and at times of crisis, New Zealanders had turned to NZME to keep them in the know with leading news and journalism. But it seems that's not a commitment that extends to the Leighton Smith podcast. Well, one podcast which really is committed to news you can use about COVID-19 is the top-rating Coronacast from Australia's ABC, hosted by infectious disease expert Dr Norman Swan. In a recent episode about New Zealand's elimination strategy, he said this about the push for ivermectin. It's hydroxychloroquine all over again, and the question is, if scarce resources, should you actually spend them on ivermectin? Well, maybe you should. It's a, it's a cheap drug, but there's stronger evidence for other drugs around at the moment. Maybe it's worth a little bit of money just to test the water. But the problem here is you've got to do big trials quickly to find the answer. And what happens here is you get pretty little trials too small to actually come to a conclusion, yet somebody grabs on to some little result on the, in the corner of the trial and says it works when it's really not justified. That's why the British have been doing really good work where massive amounts of people being treated for COVID-19 in an electronically uh, enabled healthcare system and they're able to do mass clinical trials very early, which is how we know that an HIV drug doesn't work, it's how we know hydroxychloroquine doesn't work and it's how we know that dexamethasone does work. And uh, that's the sort of thing that you need to do. And it's that dexamethasone, which Dr Swan mentioned there, combined with hydrocortisone, that's been found to help patients critically ill with COVID-19 in Dr MacArthur's research findings, which featured on the front page of the New Zealand Herald this week, where the front page headline, Breakthrough, was really justified, though it certainly isn't for Ivermectin and Professor Barodi. But in answer to this question on that edition of the Coronacast, Dr Swan acknowledged it's not always science that holds sway once the media make noise about something like ivermectin. One of the criticisms that I've seen in other media around Australia is that it's being ignored or that the scientists who are behind it are being silenced. But it's actually got funding for research, hasn't it? Yeah, it's got, it's got about a million dollars for funding. It's probably not much to fund a clinical trial, but it might be enough to get a pilot done to see whether or not there is an effect there. Uh, in other words, there's a signal there which it's worth studying further. But you wouldn't spend a lot of money early on a big clinical trial unless you've got a good signal that it works. But politics being what it is, to keep people quiet, they might do it.
Last weekend, the Herald on Sunday reported that TBNZ's dominance of its big TV rival for news and current affairs had intensified during Auckland's recent lockdown. On average, said the Herald on Sunday, the gap between One News and Three's News Habit 6 had grown to roughly half a million viewers. The former TVNZ news chief from years gone by, Bill Ralston, told the Herald, When I was there, and that is many years ago, people turn to the news organisation they trust when difficult things happen. And this week, TVNZ's marketing people sent out an email which celebrated the Herald on Sunday's report and that Bill Ralston had told the Herald on Sunday, In the last few weeks, people have just gone back to mama. Now, ironically, from this week on, there is no mama of the nation on the 6pm news on TVNZ anymore. Wendy Petrie's been axed in COVID job cuts at TVNZ, leaving dadda Simon Dallow alone at the One News desk. And if TVNZ News really is some kind of news family, remarkably, it has no one in the job that retired granddad Bill Ralston once held. John Gillespie left as TVNZ's news chief in late June, and even though his departure had been announced long before that, TVNZ has covered the COVID crisis since then and is now heading into an election without a permanent replacement. And just how that was allowed to happen is a new story about TVNZ news that's much more interesting to us here at MediaWatch than an uptick in the ratings. And finally on Media Watch, last weekend here on the programme, we heard how News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking was worried about the state taking over industries during the COVID crisis and that going under the radar. The government's going to end up owning everything. And this was triggered by the Ports of Auckland, currently owned by Auckland Council. They've written to the government, they said, please can you buy 50% of the Ports of Auckland? Well, as we heard last Sunday, that wasn't quite right. As ZB's sister paper, the New Zealand Herald, had quite clearly reported last week, it was one Auckland councillor who wrote off his own bat, proposing the sale to the Prime Minister and copied in the Herald. And the councillor involved here, Chris Darby, later apologised for not telling the Mayor or any other councillors about writing to the PM with what he called his personal view. So the PM herself was pretty puzzled when Mike Hosking asked her about a plan that didn't really exist. Are you looking at buying a chunk of Auckland port? Uh, uh, what, apropos of what there, Mike? Because they're out of money and they've written to you four-page letter asking for it. Last Tuesday, he was back on the air with his worries about the nationalisation of the same laundry list of companies. TY, New Zealand Refining, the Glenbrook Mill. There's also another loan scheme for smaller businesses where the government might end up owning a stake in them as well. I mean, just how much of this country do you want owned by the state? And when the state owns most of the country's businesses, what's that called? join some dots. And for those who said he was barking up the wrong tree on the sale of half of Ports of Auckland a week earlier, Mike Hosking had this news. The proposal, less than a week later, guess where it is this morning? It's on the desk of Grant Robertson. So something very few people seem to even be remotely aware of is now in front of the man with the money. Well, if the Minister of Money was pondering a proposal to write a cheque for half of the Ports of Auckland, we would have to say that we failed to join the dots like Mike did there. But he isn't. As the Herald had clearly reported, again, Councillor Chris Darby had sent his proposal to all Cabinet Ministers, even though the Mayor, his Deputy and the Chair of Auckland Council's Finance Committee don't support it. So it's a bit like claiming a proposal for the state to own half a Maserati would be on the desk of Mike Hosking if Grant Robertson had written to him offering to buy half of Mike's one. Even if he had the money, it's probably not a goer. And it wouldn't mean he was any more likely either to buy the smelter at TY Point, the Glenbrook Steel Mill, Marsden Point's refinery or the other half of Air New Zealand.
Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back again at the same time next weekend with more Media Watch here on RNZ National.